it's really hard to know that you'll never go back to the way things were. Yeah. And I think it's really hard when you're moving through really challenging times and just knowing that there there is no going back and is only forward. And hopefully moving forward does get better because right now it feels really, really hard. Yeah. You're listening to Duluth Story Project, true stories from our community. Today, in our third and final episode of this mini-series, we are talking about moving forward. Or, what now? Exactly, because A, it's just the reality of the situation. We only get to go forward. Well, that is until we invent time travel. But even if we do that, we should probably be really careful considering the concept of the butterfly effect. Because like Ray Bradbury taught us, every little thing we could do will have an impact on everything else, which seems like a lot of responsibility, but really- Mayor, Mayor is, there, is there a point B? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And B, because we have a chance now to take a moment, hopefully, to really look at what we want to see happen. Yeah. Which is why I brought up the butterfly effect, because all the things we do today could have an impact on all of the things we do in the future. See, totally tied it all in. (laughs) You sure did. Uh, Yeah, so here's one thing I've learned over the 40 years I've lived in America, um, is that we're really good at charging ahead. Uh, we're creative and motivated, and we really like chanting things like... We're number one! We're number one! <laughs> yeah, and yet, as we pointed out in our last episode, when it comes to COVID and the safety of our citizens... We're number one! <laughs> we are not number one! No. So ideally, we should take a look at this. Yes. This whole vaccine miniseries thing started when you and I sat down with a group of young people, and they were all either very resistant or just downright opposed to getting the vaccine. Yeah, we learned very quickly that this is um, a very complex issue that's happening in our world and in our community. And I think we didn't quite know what we were dealing with. No, not at all. And so um, hopefully today we can have these wonderful people that we got to talk to explain some of these challenges um, and some of these complexities. And I can't even tell you how valuable it was to be able to sit down and talk with these folks. So I think that now um, up next is an opportunity for you to just listen to what we had the privilege of being a part of and learning about. So let's yet again introduce some folks, starting with... Uh, My name is Dr. Mary Owen. I'm Associate Dean of Native American Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm also the Director of the Center of American Indian Minority Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And... Well, my name is Olihe Okoro. I am an Associate Professor at the College of Pharmacy, University of Minnesota, Duluth. And... My name is John Blancher. And I'm an assistant professor at, of psychology at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And so I'm Vianne Wen Fang. I use she/her pronouns. I'm an assistant professor over in the Department of Psychology at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And in addition to all of these incredible folks, we did have one professional who wished to remain anonymous, and so we honored that based on the organization that she works at. And like in the previous episode, she will be accompanied by this little ding here. And finally, drum roll. Um, we also got to sit down with the mayor of Duluth. 
Emily Larson. And the hosts of this show, I'm Mary Fox. And I'm Blake Thomas. Thank you for being here. At first, when COVID hit, Mary Owen, it was a very strange reality, strange world. You know, we um, were always, when we did go to clinic, go back into clinic, we were always wearing our scrubs um, every single day. We were all masked up. It was just such a strange, almost surreal world. So there was that, that piece. Almost all of the, well, not almost all, initially all of the visits were by telephone or by virtual, right? And um, so... Not only does it feel strange, but you're also navigating, you have to remember all the little details, like you're navigating these two new systems that you haven't used. And just as a background of how important that is, when I worked for my own tribal clinic, we'd tried for years to get telemedicine going for years, and it was always an awkward process and we never got it smooth. Then within a matter of, you've probably already heard this story, within a matter of, um, you know, couple of weeks we were up and running with telemedicine Mm -hmm. it was crazy how much um, your world can change when it needs to when it's imperative so there's that component but um on my the other side of my life i'm a um, professor up here assistant professor up here at the university of minnesota medical school and so i teach students so there was that component of um how how are we going to serve the students how are we going to get them their medical education while we're in a, a world you know a worldwide pandemic and then finally, I um, was the president of the Association of American Indian Physicians. And so on the, ba- and the forefront of my mind, as is always, is how are our communities faring? Mm-hmm. What is happening in our communities? How are people doing? And we are hearing these things come in all the time about um, <clears throat> the lack of public health infrastructure in our country overall. And we do have public health infrastructure in our communities, but because of decades, well, for, forever, um, not enough funding how does that impact it you know the health care of our folks and then there's those these other layers like um, the state is trying to provide service to um, our tribal regions but they do that through these county level offices and they weren't always simpatico you know our community members didn't always answer the phone mm-hmm. if a county member was calling to check on people because of historical right mistrust yeah right so if you got the tribe we found out you know, this is there's so much to tell you about. But these are just a couple of aspects. If you got the tribal um, health people, the people who were from the community to do the calls, then people would respond and you had better outcomes. So that would help with, are you sick? Um, how can we get you services? And then when it came to the vaccine, it would, that was critical in that regard. The structural inequity piece, you know, was kind of really very glaring. Olihe Okoro. Mm. You know, it's not that we did not know these things before. Right. It's not that we didn't know these things before, but with COVID, it became so in your face, I would say. And then with the vaccine itself, some of the things, you know, uh, what I saw also was just an example of how um, using more culturally responsive approaches. So we can't have a one size fits all. So I know with the black community and my community partners, what they did was they did a one-on-one outreach because that's how that community works. You know, just blasting an email to everybody to say, hey, there's a vaccine clinic, you know, that doesn't cut it. You know, you have to know that's why interventions need to be tailored. That's why also it's helpful when it's people from that community that develop the intervention because they know how their community works. So even with things like the COVID vaccination, you know, just having people from these communities, you know, actually making input into how can this work? 
And they will tell you where you can have a clinic and when and make it more effective. You know, who who the who the information comes from in terms of where the clinic is, who you're partnering with, all of those things play into whether people are receptive, you know, and then come coming to take the vaccine and all of that. So those are things we need to think about. You know, we need to make sure that uh, the populations that we're trying to reach, that they're at the table. Right. You know, whenever we're planning and putting programming together. So while we have, you know, a goal of increasing or enhancing vaccination rates, but we have to make sure that the populations that we're missing, that they're actually at the table because they will tell us how best things will work, what strategies that you can use, and they will know even how to get it done. And so that's another thing that we have to think about, you know, who is implementing are people in the community part of that implementation? Which means this should be um, employed, really. I mean, it's because it's it's not it's not it's work that's really tedious work. Like I was talking about the one-on-one outreach, the hours that they spent on the phone calling people, right. sometimes even having to arrange. Do you have transportation? And then being there at the clinic when those people—that's a lot of effort. It yeah. takes a lot to get that done. But that's how it's done. Overnight, most social services in Duluth closed their doors. Overnight, schools closed. And parents who worked essential jobs or were essential workers still had to go to work and they didn't have childcare. They also didn't have computers or internet at home for their kids to get onto school. I mean, there were a lot of kids going to school on their parents' cell phones. And so it it represented a lot of inconvenience. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people that just felt so defeating. Yeah. And so I think like there there did there was this resistance to being like, you wanna shut everything down, you wanna take away my childcare in the form of school, and now you want me to wear this mask everywhere I go. It just was maybe just like maybe that's just like the push over Mm -hmm. the edge. You think about the last, what, two, three, four years. Mayor Emily Larson. I think there is a lot of like resistance as it relates to body autonomy. And I think sometimes that is the crux of like feeling not comfortable with vaccinations, Mm -hmm. you know, is this threat women are experiencing uh, with, you know, the dismantling of abortion and reproductive rights. It's what people experience when they have, you know, incidents like the murder of George Floyd and a total lack of body autonomy. And you have that coupled with, you know, what's happening to our democracy and you should get a vaccine or, you know, we're going to mandate a vaccine. And, you know, it's just there's to me, there is so much to it. I try to have some empathy and compassion around how much of this is just somebody trying to figure out their space where they get to exist, right? And maybe some of that existence doesn't share the choices I would make, but maybe that's just the, maybe that's the only space you have. Like when you're talking to young mothers, like teen moms, you know, getting a vaccine's at the bottom of the list of what they're worried about. But if you listen to what they're worried about, it's about choices and autonomy. Even though I understand why people are anxious about this, there are plenty of times when we have been misled as consumers. Mary Owen. And in, you know, in the Indian, Indian Health Service itself, we um, there have been some not so great events in history. So I understand why our patients might not trust this, but the people who are, if you look at the gr- gross majority of people who are pushing you to get vaccines, pushing our patients to get vaccines, they're the doctors that you trust. 
mm-hmm. you know, and um, they are native doctors. They are African-American doctors. They're the doctors from our communities. But I, 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 un- I, under- I completely understand. And when you say that there's a group of young women who are adamantly opposed, well, on one hand, it's like you said, I'm, I'm so happy that they have that autonomy and they feel strong. On the other hand, it's I want to approach them um, as a group with a group of folks who understand the mechanisms of these viruses and the vaccines and be able to have a sit down with them because I know that they're getting the information from places that aren't as well, as intelligent. Yes. And, and then yeah. it's at those places not only give the wrong information. And I know this because on, we, uh, the association of American Indian physicians, we had a website on these vaccines and we would get trolling with silly messages, really silly, negative, and terrible messaging, even racist messages. Mm-hmm. So not only are the, is the wrong message being sent out, but um, people are sending out messages reinforcing this, you must say no. Yes. And, and, and making people think that that's a real form of autonomy, a real form, of, it is autonomy, but uh, that this is your time to stand up. Not stand up for your rights yep. uh, to not be um, railroaded at, uh, when you're renting an apartment or for your rights as an employee to get wages that are accurate or, or uh, fair. Yep. This is not the place to stand this up. It's not, yeah. It's not, you know. Hi. Hey, Marion Blake here. Just wanted to pop in for a quick second. Mostly because I'm sure you missed us. Yeah, uh, but also uh, we're going to shift gears ever so slightly and get into the psychological side of things for a minute here with the incredible John Blancher. There is a phenomenon in psychology called reactance theory. And reactance theory is the formal theory that people commonly call reverse psychology. Okay. And the theory stipulates that people have a need for autonomy and freedom. We don't like to be constrained. We don't like to be told what to do or that we can't do things. And it, even if we wanted to do something um, beforehand and we're told we can't, uh, we're, even if we want to do something, we said we're told we have to do it, um, because it becomes a little, little less attractive. And similar, if we're told we, we can't do something and we didn't want to do it, it becomes more attractive than it otherwise would. So you see this happen in politics a lot where some authority says, I'm going to do what we all know is beneficial to us and brings in a policy that's then seen to be uh, sometimes along political lines, but you bring it in and people become resistant and they probably wouldn't have been resistant beforehand. Great example in recent history of this is uh, when uh, Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City mm-hmm. and he entered in, in, he had the, like what some called the big gulp ban. Yeah. Familiar with this, uh-huh. right? So it's these big sugary giant fountain drinks, like big gulps, you get like a 7-Eleven. And he didn't say you can't buy you know, that much soda, just that you can't buy it in one go. You just have to order more of it at a time. You have to make the conscious decision to buy multiple drinks if you wanted to do that. Right. These people were, a lot of these people, they weren't going to, they they, they had no interest in buying giant sodas, but you tell them they can't and they think it's their duty, nay, their responsibility to make a big stink about it and say, don't you tell us what to do. Um, Don't be the nanny states. Um, we can do whatever we want, even if it's not good for us. And right. psychological reactance does predict some uh, vaccine resistance. It's not the full story, but it is a part of our basic human psychology that's relevant to understanding how people react to when they're told they must do something. I think a part of that too, Vianne Winfeng. We've seen in previous political elections when we try to get someone on our side in a way and we're really stubborn or set firm in our views all it does is harden the other person and polarize the distance more 
So I think that is one of the, an example of meeting people where they're at instead of expecting them to come exactly where we are in our corner. And because I think miscommunication and is a facet of it as well, not only by the media, but between people among folks. And uh, also understanding where each of us are coming from is key. It's balancing respect for people's personal autonomy with public health. Um, and I think that is a conversation around a lot of vaccines and like the decision to get vaccinated um, where there are personal risks as with anything, but mm -hmm. but it is for the good of the entire population. Um, and it's just compl complicated by so many things. And you know, as I was saying earlier, it's like if you have felt somewhat excluded by civil society your whole life and then you have so much messaging being targeted at you or people like you specifically to do this thing for the betterment of society, it's kind of like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, and I think another piece of it really does need to be this validation of the institutional mistrust. Um, because when the messaging around the vaccine rolled out, it was like, it was a confluence of these two really powerful, longstanding institutions with kind of complicated pasts. And like, I would say that would be like the medical scientific institution. And like, for the sake of this conversation, we'll just say that those two were in tandem through this and then the government. And I think both of these institutions have histories in which mistrust was created and that mistrust is valid and to then move into a pandemic and a vaccine rollout where it is just expected that you will forget about that for the sake of public health it it just felt wrong to so many people how do you feel as a phys as a doctor as someone who is helping people literally every single day and teaching educating how do you feel like now mary owen depends on the moment yeah <laughs> right yeah there are times i'm always trying to be my better self and understand why um you know people might feel like this is the hill to die on right mm -hmm. and trying to understand and get behind that because that's my that's my job as a doctor that's how i treat yeah. take care of people right um and then there are moments where I have to walk away because I'm just so angry that something so important has been politicized. And it's not the fault of that patient, but it is the fault of some leaders, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And not only the leaders past, we know how catastrophic that is. We don't even need to talk about that. But even the leaders moving now, are we going to have a full, complete public health system? Probably not even though we just had a pandemic that says we absolutely had a terrible public health system and look at our numbers mm -hmm. as a result of it. Mm -hmm. But our leaders, are they going to um, say, okay, we need more public, from that we need more money than ever in this public health system. So there's lots of things to be angry with. I always try to remind myself, just as you pointed out, we got to be angry at the system yeah, and not these individuals. Yep. And if we're, if I'm going to be bother being angry with the individuals, it's not going to be from the people who don't make anything or don't, you know, it's going to be from the people who are on that one in that one percent. With them, I, I I'm fine with being infuriated with. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. And I could cuss a lot more about that one. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so we'll be back next week, and we will just have a podcast dedicated to that. Are there things that uh, going forward? 
that you would like to see happen more um, as far as community outreach or ways to bring people together as a community? Olihe Okoro. Well, I would say I would like to see uh, more healthcare providers of color Mm -hmm. because I feel like um, when you have more of those and then you're able to, healthcare is able to engage more and also research is able to engage more with community. Um, so in terms of community, I want to be able to, or I'm, I'm just hopeful that we can have more persons that look like them in the community so that we can have more of these conversations, Right. you know, just in the community, you know, it doesn't even have to be formal gatherings, you know, but just others who are part of the community just being present, you know, and being able to give this information you know, as people need it. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I mean, I know this is maybe a bit more long-term in terms of thinking about how can we have a more diverse healthcare workforce? How can we have more researchers of color and all of that? I know it's long-term, but I think it's something that we need to be thinking about because, you know, today is COVID. We don't know what's coming up, you know, next. It may not be a pandemic, but it could be anything. We're still, this opioid crisis still ongoing. There are so many things that healthcare I mean, they're always health challenges. And oftentimes we see that those impact communities of color much more. Right. More so than, you know, um, than the white population. And so we have to constantly think, how are we going to address this? You know, are the things that are barriers, are the things that are more structural that need to go away or need to be deconstructed? You know, but I think that the more people we have in the healthcare that reflect these communities, you know, that it will shift something because especially that trust piece. Yeah. Because I feel like that is such a key. Absolutely. Yeah, you can have all these resources, but if people don't trust, they are not going to engage. It's just so, I like in this moment, I'm not sure that there is a, a ton that could be done to to fix it. But yeah. like, if we were to move forward, we probably should invest more in public education. We probably should work harder to keep young people in school, which means changing some of the policies that schools have for yeah. um, behavior and like supportive services for kids that are struggling so that, and you know, we, we shouldn't create policies that drop really important pieces of history from the narrative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, we need to have that base of understanding of of the history here for for people to be able to make choices about things like vaccines and and knowing and just like but knowing a full history and knowing that it's not perfect i don't think that completely delegitimizes a vaccine rollout if anything i think it can like lead to a greater understanding where we can be like yes these things have happened in the past this is why this is different and you need to have that historical understanding and you need to feel validated in that and you need to get it from reputable sources. Like this podcast, we are reputable as hell. Reputable as hell. Reputable as hell. Thank you. Thank you. Tell your friends about this podcast. Uh, no, that was a moment of levity before we uh, get on with uh, the list of all of the that's wrong with the world. Mary? 
There's systemic racism. There's misogyny. Bigotry of all kinds. Inequity when it comes to wealth distribution. And all of this stuff you have no control over. It's just where you were born, who you were born to. You had no say in this. Yeah, I mean, if it were up to me, I would have been born to wealthy alpaca farmers living high up in the Andes Mountains. But what are you going to do? I don't know. <laughs> no one has perfect answers to any of this. Yeah, but hopefully this last part of the episode will bring you a little hope. So we'll hand it back over to Mary Owen. They did a study, in, I want to say the end of 2021, when the vaccines were just barely rolling out, um, of about a thousand Native people across the country, over 300 different tribal reservations or, or communities were represented and asked those folks, are you going to get the vaccine? Three-fourths of them said, yes, we're going to get the vaccine. And of those who said that, three-fourths of them said, we're getting it because we want to protect our community. We know it's important to protect our really? community. So there's this really strong, people always emphasize the mistrust, but I don't see enough emphasizing of uh, strong community value that we have of wanting to protect one another, our elders, our children, of knowing that how critical that is. So uh, another example of people in the community caring for one another, I got to talk to Seth Courier, who is the executive director at the Damiano Center, which is an organization here in Duluth, and they offer a slew of amazing social services, including a community kitchen that uh, has been in operation for over 40 years, and in that time has not missed a single day of providing meals to anyone who wants a meal. Uh, one thing he did mention in terms of COVID and safety that really stuck with me was that in his experience, there were more people masking at the Damiano than you might generally see if you went to the grocery store. And I just thought that was a wonderful and notable thing because vaccinated or not, in agreement on the issue or not, there's still ways we can all care for one another, always. And um, I brought that up with uh, Mayor Larson. So for, I think, 12 or 13 years, I worked at CHUM at the drop-in center. I was a social worker, pre-elected. you know, elected, And um, I worked with people experiencing homelessness and income insecurity. And um, to this day, those are the stories that motivate me, right? There's just so much survival, and there's so much resilience, and there's so much courage in the lives of people who are experiencing deep poverty and insecurity but there which is so incredibly beautiful when they're willing when people are comfortable sharing those stories with you you know what they have survived to get to that soup kitchen that day is like nothing it, it is like i i it's amazing right and um but they were also still the most generous people with one another right there, because there was this like, I know what you've been through. I know you're a survivor. And I will share the last that I have with you because someone shared it. Like there is a, it doesn't surprise me to hear that is what I'm saying at the Damiano because there is something about, you know, that that survival is so deep that you're like, why wouldn't I? You know, that's actually people seeing each other's humanity there, yes. right? Yeah. Like I'm not vaccinated. I'm not into this, but oh my gosh, I know how hard this life is and why would I make it harder for you? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That empathy, that humanity, there's just this incredible, beautiful, complicated, simple connection that can exist when you have those same you know, economic conditions, I think. We have to contextualize. Yes, you want people to get vaccinated, but you know they have other needs too. Olihe Okoro. And so I saw like our community partners, I saw them do that, you know, where... They're reaching out and 
meeting needs that people have that may not be about COVID, maybe related to COVID, you know, but other needs, mm -hmm. just life needs and being right. able to provide resources. Can we provide? So there were like, they were giving people information about resources that were available, maybe where they could get some food, where they, because you just, that's what it is, you know, because sometimes we just don't want to tell someone something you know, that they should do. Meanwhile, they have a situation and you're not even doing doing anything to alleviate the situation, but you're telling them they should go get right. a shot. Yeah. You know, they have other things that are going on. So yeah. that's that's the way I think about it. It reminds me, you know, I'm a Christian and um, there's a place in the Bible where Jesus was saying, you know, um, it's not enough to say to, I mean, somebody doesn't have, somebody is hungry you know, cold and, you know, and then you say, be well, you know, you can wish the person well, but, you know, a meal will, <laughs> giving the person a meal will, <laughs> will probably be, you know, a better response right, <laughs> than some comforting words. I mean, the words meaningful as they are will not feed the person, neither right. will it give them, you know, the, the physical warmth that they need. So maybe if you could like give them an old coat that you have and like maybe buy them something to eat, that that will go a long way. <laughs> then we could talk about getting vaccinated. Exactly. Right? So that's yes. the thing. That's yeah. the thing. We had to be careful in certain institutions, like say, you know, the university. John Blancher. There, there are rules that we play by in terms of our, our truth seeking. Um, that is things like no ad hominem arguments, uh, meaning you don't attack people with saying you're wrong because of who you are. That doesn't fly. It shouldn't fly. That is not no bearing on what is true. Um, also, uh, you need evidence for things and there are no arguments from authority. You can't say, well, I'm professor so-and-so, so I'm right. Sorry, game over. Um, and so you need to show evidence and you need to show your work. Those are the rules for truth seeking and people are wrong all the time, but it's easier to overturn and convince people, not that it's always easy, but it's much easier to do that when people play by certain rules. There's sort of a free-for-all in these environments that we're still learning about on social media where we really haven't developed, I, I think, a good way about how do you set them up so that people follow certain rules that are good for epistemic curiosity and thinking in ways where people can be wrong and it's not end game for them, uh, nor is it that we foreclose on on early um, claims or ideas that we allow the system to work through and find less and less less wrong to a better approximation of probably what's right. Uh, is it possible to get to that place where we're all benefiting and kind of playing by the same rule book and curiosity mm -hmm. before we just completely tear the country apart? It's a great question. <laughs> I wish I had the answer for it. Um, part of it, I think, the, the, I think there's some precursors that are making this very difficult to, to find an answer to this. And that is that there's just so little goodwill and trust. In fact, there's the opposite of goodwill. There's, there's spite and resentment and fear across, um, our political and social divisions. Um, and it's, it's very hard to trust, um, people that you don't know personally, individuals. It's, I mean, it's much easier to trust people that you know as individuals. Harder to trust people on the internet and a lot harder to trust groups, especially groups on the internet. So it, it's it's hard to um, 
feel like you're, you're that there are genuine communications and that um, and that there's value or something beneficial um, to hearing other perspectives or points of view. And I think that in in the sense that we're so resentful, suspicious, spiteful, you know, um, feel that feel that the other side is a very threat. Um, and that we're more motivated to counter that than we are to present our own solutions and, and uh, our own policies, et cetera, uh, that this is preventing us from maybe solving some of these problems that maybe aren't going to be solved easily, but could be solved. What are the little things that you can do that are actionable mm-hmm. that um, might help to kind of bring people together? Mayor Larson. If you're a busy person, you have your busy schedule and I, you're doing I your honestly stuff. think just slow down. Slow down with what it is you're doing. Slow down when you're walking in the hallway. Slow down when you're in the elevator with someone. Slow down at Target. Just slow down. Slow down your pace. Look up. Talk to somebody. Like it's all those things that we were embarrassed by with our parents when we were kids. It's like the making human connection in the checkout line. Like to me, those are the things. Those those are the character things you see in people. How people treat each other when they don't have to, right? Like whether it is you know amazing, awesome you know wait staff. Whether it is somebody seating you somewhere. Whether it's a, a checkout. Like to me, those are the most beautiful interactions. So what do people just slow down doing what they're already doing? You know, because so much we're like, I'm going to add this in, and then guess what? I don't do it because I had to add something in, right, to my yes. life. Like yes. I don't have time to add more to my life. But I ca- I'm already doing these things, so what if I approach them a little differently? What do you think? And what do you think? You, listening, how can we bring our community together? You know, part of it is just simply asking that question. What do you think? And actually allowing people to answer it and listen to them and being okay with differing opinions. And and if you really want to go next level with it, uh, understanding that having these differing opinions uh, does not necessarily mean a binary situation. There's a lot of numbers between zero and one. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, back to Vianne Winfeng. I think perhaps thinking of it in more of a continuous way, like we are all sharing different opinions, like everybody in a room, is everyone sharing just a, a different opinion as opposed to these folks agree and these folks disagree because in a way that's dichotomizing it and creating those poles, even though it's so easy and natural to do that. Like we want things parsimonious. We want things simple, like yes, no, right, wrong. And uh, yeah, I think allowing that to be more of a spectrum and not even a linear spectrum, but like a circular spectrum in which we can all share, I think fosters and fosters growth. I think the pandemic just gave me a lot of perspective and gratitude. And I think also I didn't get caught up I didn't get whipped up in the political drama and the the frustration that I think a lot of people felt, which was valid, about vaccination status because I had very consistent, authentic contact with the folks that were, quote unquote, like holding it up and were being, you know, and who weren't following the guidelines. Um, and I know them as whole human beings that are, you know, just as valuable and worthy as any of us. And that really helped my perspective on it. Can I go back to 
Um, I had a question about, uh, this is kind of in the beginning, about the idea that change can happen very quickly when it's critical and imperative. Mm -hmm. Like, do you, is that something that, how do I say this? Is that something that you find hope in that it can be done? Or is it something that you're like, well, God damn it. Like, you could have done this a while ago and we've been telling you to do it, but you didn't. And then it took something this bad to actually do something about it. Mary Owen. It's both, right? Because you know, by the fact that it happened, you know it's possible. Right. But probably overwhelmingly, it's depressing because, I mean, there's so many different areas where we've needed change. And, you know, I live in a town, we live in a town where the high school graduation rate for Native kids and African-American kids is um, so low that I don't don't even want to say it. It's ridiculous. And it's been that way for decades. And um, some days I just want to cry that nobody seems to to recognize that and want to change it. So when I know that there's things that can change and yet things that don't change that are so important that they're infecting pe- affecting people's lives, that's a little much. So I always say, you know, if we're not seeing them in class today, we're not seeing them in healthcare tomorrow. I mean, Olihe Okoro. I teach in the pharmacy school. So that's the thing. How, who's here now is who mm-hmm. will be given care tomorrow. So we have to really think long-term. We have to think to like, middle school and high school, like how are they doing? Are they on track to be, to become? Because that's where it starts from. You know, the foundation in terms of education, that's where it starts from, you know, and do they have those opportunities? Because if people don't even have opportunities to go to college, we can forget about healthcare because many of these professions are like graduate level, Right. you know, yeah. So if you're not even, if you don't even have a chance to get into college, we can, def- we're sure you're not even going to make it into the high, the professions of, 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 of medicine. Right. So I think we have to pay attention to that, which then gets us back to the structural inequities and social determinants, where people live, where people are born, what schools are they going to, what economic opportunities do they have, what educational opportunities do they have. You know, and so we keep seeing that divide. We keep seeing that divide as you look at kids in elementary school, in middle school, you can already begin to see trajectories. Mm-hmm. You can see it right there. I mean, my kids have gone through the public school system. I have one more who is a junior in high school right now. So you can see it. You can see the trajectory right there. Mm-hmm. So that's, we need to be thinking long-term um, and we need to be thinking about what what is it that we can do in terms of equity at that point, you know? Um, so we have to think broader than healthcare. I think in retrospect, I've learned that we're capable of surviving in, against enormous odds and that when you stay calm and you stay focused and you just keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. Sometimes that is your work, right? And being honest about what you know, being honest about what you don't know. These are all things I've always done and always been, but all of those values for me felt just really on full display. Like I felt as a mayor really vulnerable, you know, and I'm talking to mayors constantly around the state and the governor's office and everyone's great, right? Like everyone's just trying to figure it out. but you feel really vulnerable and there's no conditions. There's there's no guarantee you can give anybody other than we will pay every ounce of attention we have to this. Yeah. 
right? Our job is to help you survive. Our job is to help make sure that I don't know how we're going to make sure your heat's on when you can't pay. I don't know how we're going to keep all of our staff safe who have to plow, but oh my gosh, all I can promise you is that we're going to do our best to help you survive. I just feel so emotional right now. <laughs> I just like, it just hit me like we're talking to you as a leader that had to like do all of that for so many people. Mm-hmm. It's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Thank it you. felt like a really big deal, but yeah. but thank you. And, and not so much a big deal like I'm a big deal. It just felt like, how are we capable of this? How yeah. do we figure this out? Yeah. You know? Sorry. And but this is what happens, yeah. right? When we actually tap into it, right? When yes. we actually, yeah. you know, I've, I've been thinking like Leonard Cohen, we all know, you know, the crack is how the light gets in. There's a crack, there's a crack and everything. That's how the light gets in, right? That's how I've gotten through the past two years. It's like that crack. There's so much light right now flooding in and it's, you can feel that relief, right? And that realization of like, you know, we were so broken, but I think we've broken open, you know? Duluth Story Project is a program of Zeitgeist. Created by Mary Fox, with help from Amy Demmer, Sarah Luke, and Andrea Krause. And a special thank you to Mackenzie McCullum for her notes on this episode. Sound design, music, and audio production by Blake Thomas. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And from Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation. Funded in part by the Anonymous Friend Fund, the Dr. and Mrs. Bernard Becker Charitable Fund, and the Living Legacy Fund. With additional support from the CDC Foundation, St. Louis County, and Cartier Insurance. Thank you for listening. To make a donation and for more information, head to DuluthStoryProject.com.